there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies, and welcome to another episode of Time for Coffee. I am so excited that you press play, and you will be too after you meet my next guest, who is an expert in the field of arboriculture and puts his passion for tree planting and maintenance into practice as one of the arborists for the city of Alexandria, Virginia, where he works to create a robust tree canopy for one of the most densely populated cities in America. But before I introduce you to Matthew Barker, I want to make sure that you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that brings you an exclusive window every Monday into what episodes we're going to be dropping that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time the number four coffee.org to sign up. It couldn't be easier. And while you're there, check out all the other amazing professionals we've had on the show. They're even organized by career so you can find exactly who and what you're interested in. So my wonderful Java junkies, it is time to grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew as we dive into another caffeinated career conversation. And today, I am thrilled to introduce you to the very first arborist I've had on Time for Coffee and another incredible person in the T4C world. And that is one of my amazing Time for Coffee interns, Riley Graham, who's been supporting the show behind the scenes for months now as a fall 2018 T4C intern. Riley is going to be co-hosting the show with me today, and I am so excited to share the microphone with her. Riley, why don't you tell the T4C community a little bit about yourself and then do the honors of introducing our distinguished guest. Thanks, Andrea. Hey, Java Junkies. I'm Riley, and I studied journalism at the George Washington University. I am so excited to be sitting in on this interview today, as the outdoors and everything related bring so much joy to my life. At GW, I am very involved as a hiking and backpacking guide for a student organization that helps to get students out of the city and into nature. With that being said, it's my pleasure to introduce Matthew Barker, a specialist in tree health and risk assessment who has made an impressive career for himself in the field of arboriculture. As arborist for the city of Alexandria, Matt is responsible for the well-being of the city's tree canopy, overseeing strategic plantings on public lands to maximize the environmental and human health benefits of Alexandria's urban forest. Prior to his current job, Matt worked as an arborist for the architect of the Capitol and was crucial to the maintenance of over 4,000 trees on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. This included nationally recognized memorial trees, diplomatic gifts, and experimental strain specimens. Matt's passion for the world of arboriculture is evident in his work and his involvement in extra professional projects, such as mapping tree species in the city of Alexandria. Matt, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? <laughs> I'm caffeinated. I'm very excited to be here. This is great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it is our pleasure. We are so excited to talk with you, Matthew, and to learn about what you do. But before we really get into the details of your current job, could you please start by giving the T4C community an overview of what exactly arboriculture is and what drew you to this field in the first place? Sure. So arboriculture is a very wide ranging amalgamation of a lot of different aspects of 
trees and caring for them. There's many different aspects to it from, like I described before, vegetation management, which is simply managing trees and plant material along transmission lines and power lines, electric lines along rights of way. There's the aspect of private tree care where homeowners and landowners will contact tree companies to properly care, prune, plants, if necessary, remove trees on private property. And then there's also aspects that I'm involved in currently where I work for a municipality, a city, a county, sometimes a state that manages trees along public lands, parks, government buildings within the city rights of way. Most people would be familiar with street trees, trees planted in the sidewalk or between the sidewalk and the street and managing their health going forward. What drew me to the industry was what started out as sort of a natural curiosity. I was born and raised in Western Massachusetts. It's a pretty forested area. And so I was always playing in the outdoors, in the woods, just discovering things on my own and being really interested in how sort of an ecosystem works together and how trees are a vital part of that. And then what grew from a natural curiosity. I developed into an academic career at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, where I studied biology. Interesting that I started out as a neuroscience major because that's what I was sort of into at the time and then decided I didn't really like lab work and I wanted to be in the forest. So I sort of switched my focus to a tree community ecology standpoint and have never looked back and never been happier. Were you the kind of kid growing up who was always way up there in the trees giving your mom or your dad a heart attack? When I did most of my kid tree climbing, it was mostly when I was out in the woods from the uh, worrying eye of my parents. But in a lot of times, it was really just exploring the landscape. We lived next to a very heavily forested area. So it's just always out there for hours, just going wherever I pleased. It was pretty great. It was almost like something out of a Calvin and Hobbes comic where they're just walking in the forest and just discovering things. I, I relate did that very much. Awesome. So kind of in that vein, currently you work as an arborist for the city of Alexandria, Virginia. What does that mean exactly? What are your job responsibilities and what does an average day look like for you in that position? So that's a really great question. So I am part of a team of arborists that manage all of the trees growing on public lands, whether, like I said before, that's parks, government buildings, trees growing in the city right of way. I manage all the trees that are growing east of Commonwealth Avenue, if you're familiar with the city of Alexandria. Basically, that boils down to the Old Town neighborhood, the historic Del Rey neighborhood, and then the newly developed Potomac Greens adjacent to Potomac Yards in Alexandria. And I perform risk assessments and health assessments on trees, determine what specific type of care that they need. And then I forward those recommendations in the form of a report to our contractor who actually carries out the work. I also go back and do quality assurance checks to make sure that they're performing the right type of care that I've recommended for that specific tree. And I also directly respond to resident requests for maintenance or questions or concerns through our online portal. Residents can submit questions or just give us a call. If they have questions or concerns about a tree, they can ask us directly. We'll go out, inspect the tree and let them know. And if work needs to be done, pass that on to the contractor. So in the Espresso Shots episode, which will air separately from this one, Matt, you were talking about the health of trees and how one of the things that Java junkies might find surprising is that a tree that is hollowed out or looks to be hollowed out could actually 
actually still be structurally quite sound and wouldn't need to come down. So when you talk about the health of a tree, what do you need to see as an arborist that tells you this tree can't be saved? That's a really good question. So yeah, previously I talked about how a tree can lose to some people surprising amount of internal heartwood and still maintain a large portion of its holding strength where you're looking for indicators of decay is what they call them. So insect activity, carpenter ants, some people think carpenter ants bore into the wood and are a destructive force on a tree, whereas really they're taking advantage of wood that's already been compromised, usually by a fungal infection. And they're just cleaning, basically just cleaning it up and making a home for themselves. They're not actually a cause of decay. So if I'm trying to determine if a tree needs to come down, usually what I'll look for is clues in the crown of the tree. You know, having a dead branch here, or a dead branch there is usually pretty normal. But when you're looking at this overall pattern of stress and maybe the tree dying back where the outermost portions of the crown are thin and the leaves are not the right shape, they're not the right size, they're not the right color. And there's a lot of internal growth in the tree where just new growth is just exploding on the inside of the tree. That's usually a, almost like a cry for help. The tree's trying to produce as much sugar as possible, but it can't drive all the nutrients and water that it's absorbing in the roots all the way to the top of the crown. And usually that's a big red flag for me. So what it does is it produces just massive amounts of growth along the trunk or in the internal part of the tree. That's a big red flag. Large cavities that have no evidence that they're sealing shut. Trees don't heal. Trees will seal. They seal off their wounds and try to sort of quarantine that wound for lack of a better term. They try to, you know, sequester it off from the outside environment to reduce the amount of fungal infections and strains that they're ex exposed to. So cavities that aren't sealing shut, the red flags and the health of the crown. I'm looking for, you know, maybe evidence of damage to the root system, fruiting by bodies at the base of the tree, that is an indicator that there's some significant root rot. Just there's a whole host of that. I could get into the nerdy, weedy details of it, but that's great. Those, that's are, those, are, those, those are the major ones. You had a project at one point, it might even still be in effect today, in which you were searching for champion trees. What are champion trees? And could you talk a little bit about how you sought them out? Because that seems to me like a really interesting story. And why was it so important to you to identify them? Yeah, so that's kind of this pet project that I sort of took on at the city of Alexandria, where I worked in conjunction with not only my supervisor, John Noli, the city arborist, but also Rod Simmons, who's our natural resource manager for the city of Alexandria and our natural lands manager, where we will either direct ourselves or with the help of residents seek out champion trees. And what a champion tree is, is the largest tree of its species growing in a defined area. So you can have a city champion tree, you can have a county or a state or a national champion or even a world champion. So whatever scope you're defining at, it's the largest specimen of its species. So a champion tree doesn't necessarily have to be the biggest tree in the world. For example, the city of Alexandria has the national champion pear hawthorn. And it's a pretty obscure species, but this champion tree is only, if I remember correctly, 20, 25 feet tall. And it's maybe just, it's less than a foot in diameter. You know, we're talking about maybe the size of a softball in diameter, maybe a little bit larger. So champion trees don't have to be huge. They just have to be the largest of their species. What is it about trees that has captured your imagination that has captured your professional passions to the degree that you have built your career around them right now. Yeah, it, they're pretty remarkable organisms. So one thing that I find fascinating is that really a 
direct response to the environment in which they're growing. So they're going to grow in the direction where there's sunlight. So if you're in a forest setting and there's a hole in the canopy, that's where the tree is going to grow to sort of fill in that space. If there's a lot of water in a given area because it's a floodplain or for whatever reason, you're going to find trees growing there that like to have, you know, a wet root zone. You're not going to find a tree that likes to have dry, rocky soil, you know, down at the bottom of a, of a floodplain. So they're just this direct response to their environment in which they're growing. And while it's pretty obvious, trees can't move. And so they have to live their entire lives from germination to death in one single spot. And they have a lot of challenges to trying to do what every other organism on the planet is doing, which is stay alive long enough or as long as possible in order to pass their genes on to the next generation. And the longer they can do that, the more biologically successful they are. And so there's a lot of challenges to staying put in one spot for your entire life and doing just what every other organism is trying to do is trying not to be preyed upon and trying to reproduce as much as possible. But being able to move around, animals have a distinct advantage, whereas trees don't. They rely on animals to help them. And so that sort of interwoven part of the ecosystem is really fascinating to me. As Riley said in her introduction to you, Matthew, among your responsibilities right now are overseeing strategic plantings on public land to maximize the environmental and human health benefits of Alexandria's urban forest. Can you give us an example of a strategic planting that either you've made or the team has made and why it's considered strategic and how these plantings are enhancing human health in the city of Alexandria. Sure, absolutely. So a strategic planting is is just the term that is most familiar to arborists or people in the tree care industry is right tree, right place. You want to be planting trees in the proper place, you're going to give them the best chance to A, succeed and thrive, but also to maximize whatever characteristics that species has to offer. So whether it be size, shape, longevity, you want to put the tree in the best position to succeed. So for example, a lot of times people will notice they have power lines running along the street on one side of the road. And I'm sure we've all seen trees growing up underneath the power lines and the power company will come and just sort of form these, they look like wings. So the power lines can go through the crown. They cut everything in the center and the top and the tree kind of grows on the sides of those. That is an example of of something that is not strategically planted. The municipality didn't plant the correct tree for the space. So you can't plant a tree like an oak that can grow up to 100 feet tall underneath power lines that are 30 feet above the ground. And so what we've started doing is planting small flowering ornamental trees underneath power lines. So instead of planting an oak or an elm, we'll plant a flowering cherry tree like there are down at the Tidal Basin in Washington, D.C., plums, crepe myrtles, really just any number of smaller trees that aren't going to be needed to be just decimated by the utility company for line clearance. And maybe another example would be if you've got a space that you're trying to plant a tree in and you've got just a wide area that you can fill, maybe consider planting a tree like an elm, which has a wide umbrella-shaped crown, as opposed to maybe a tree that is maybe more columnar. And so you can fill a space or elms make great street trees because they naturally grow upright. And so the lower branches don't grow out into the road or the sidewalk. They have this tendency just to grow up, like I said, like an umbrella. And so they make great street trees. And traditionally, they were only planted along streets, you know, in the early days of arboriculture. Wonderful. 
So knowing that about how individual trees can be beneficial to a certain space, why is having overall a robust and healthy tree population valuable for a city? And what kinds of factors do you consider when planting and cultivating Alexandria's trees? And I think I forgot to answer the second part, which also is how they're impactful on our, our bodies themselves. So I'll sort of combine the two. So how they're good for cities and also how they're good for humans in general. So just in general, it's really impossible to overstate the importance of, of trees to both our civilization and to our bodies. They have just innumerable benefits that they impart to us and just really ask for nothing in return. This is really very topical, but they control erosion. They reduce the amount of storm water that gets flooded into our storm sewers. And so they also help with stream bank erosion, which is a huge problem in our area. They sequester carbon in their wood. They filter the air for pollutants, carbon dioxide, all sorts of other gases that they, they take in and then impart oxygen onto us. They also reduce physical particulates in the air. So if there is a physical particulate of matter, it will get stopped by the leaves of the tree and then usually fall down to the ground. So they, they filter the air and they also clean the air for greenhouse gases. So Matt, I'd like to flash back to back when you were my age, when you were studying to get your bachelor's of science in biology and tree ecology from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. It looks like you were working directly in the field of what you studied in college. Did you always know what you wanted to do with your degree when you graduated? And how do you feel your college education has prepared you for the real working world of arboriculture? So I had a lot of sleepless nights in school wondering what I was going to do with my life, what how I was going to get a career out of something that really was just sort of a visceral curiosity for me. I mentioned before that I was really into neuroscience when I was an early undergrad for maybe my first couple of years. And then I worked in a lab and I really didn't connect with it. It wasn't really for me. And I ended up sort of transitioning it's funny that I started studying neuroscience and then I ended up working with organisms that have no central nervous system at all. <laughs> but I always kind of looked back and thought that was pretty funny. But I had a lot of sleepless nights wondering what I was going to do. And I sort of just, if I could just you know go back and tell my young self just not to worry about it, everything will fall into place. So it, it sort of turned out that way, but it was really just, I changed from a neuroscience major to a tree community college and it was really concentration of study. I was always a biology major, but I concentrated my studies in neuroscience and then I changed that concentration to tree community ecology, really just because I didn't connect with my major and I just wanted to change before it was too late. And I just sort of enjoyed it. And just the more I learned, the more I enjoyed. So I just kept building upon that until it became time to switch from an academic career to a professional career. And in college, I did part of a very large research project where we went into the forest and we had a plot of a hillside in the, the Holyoke Range in Western Massachusetts and came up with hypotheses and a whole research project using the data that we went out and collected in the field. And that was the laboratory setting that I was just immediately drawn to was working with trees as opposed to working with petri dishes. And I'm not trying to be condescending to anybody working lab. It's, it's hard work. It's fantastic work. It just wasn't for me. Absolutely. I don't, I didn't get that vibe at all. Right. I think okay, what good. you're saying <laughs> is you were suddenly outside and thinking, oh, I could get paid to do this, <laughs> right? Yeah. It was just very fascinating work. And I just sort of, the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And so that just fueled this sort of transition from academic to professional life. Matt, Riley and I are super excited to learn more about the rest of your career. But before we get into mm -hmm. that, I was hoping to hear a little bit more about what you did right after college. And you spent a number of months, I think around seven, volunteering as a trainer 
trail and park rehabilitator in Alaska. How did you land that position? And can you tell us some more about what a trail and park rehabilitator in Alaska, by the way, does? Right. So when I graduated from the University of Massachusetts, it was in the summer of 2008. Very difficult time for a lot of people, especially young people, trying to find work because of the impending housing and financial crisis that was coming about. So I was having trouble finding gainful employment. So I decided that I didn't want to just have holes in my resume and gaps to sort of explain away, I decided to volunteer with the AmeriCorps. The plan was to work with graduate or PhD students sort of gathering information for their projects. So in the community, they're called field bums, where newly released undergrads will go out and collect data. It was a choice between Alaska or Arizona, where I was going to help a graduate student study watersheds in Arizona. And I decided to go to Alaska and work with the AmeriCorps. And basically, we were just sponsored by different agencies, state parks, national parks, the Alaska DOT. And we would do environmental projects that they needed help on. So that ranged from invasive species removal to clearing brush on the side of the highway or rehabbing trails with the state parks. So there's a lot of ATV and snowmobile trails for state parks. So a lot of them have to get rehabbed, whether it's because of overuse or erosion or animal activity, any number of things that they needed help on. So it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work. We lived, worked, camped with the same group of people for six months that we had never met before. And we had to find a way to not only to work together, but live together, camp together, cook together, clean together, travel together. It was a very intense program. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about what it takes to be part of a team, to be a leader. It was a tremendous life experience that had a profound impact on my life. And I met my beautiful wife for the program as well, Shantine. So we met in Alaska. So it's, it was a great experience. Oh, I bet that was super romantic. <laughs> it definitely was. It was a lot of fun to be able for us to meet and then immediately have these projects we're working on. And then we have to go back to camp and interact as friends and coworkers at the same time. I feel like that probably helped fuel our, our love. <laughs> That's adorable. <laughs> it is adorable. I'm getting all, all blush now. <laughs> so you kind of mentioned this when talking about learning like group skills out on the trail, yep. but I'm just curious about what skills, if any, you picked up while volunteering in the backcountry that may have translated well into your professional life. So not only did we have to work as a team to meet deliverables for a specific project we're working on, but also it sounds maybe a little bit exaggerated, but even just basic survival, I didn't ever feel like my life was in danger. But but you were in the Alaskan backcountry where interactions with bears, moose, other large dangerous animals are a very real possibility. And the program we had, there was a very strict, you know, no firearm policy. So we really had to rely on our preparation and our wits to make sure we just avoided any sort of dangerous interactions were at all possible. So you have to rely on the group of people that are around you for your basic survival, trusting people and knowing that they have your best interests at heart and forming a strong bond with them. And, you know, I feel like that carried over for me when I became an arborist and started working on trees. And again, working in a very dangerous, potentially deadly work environment where you have to trust the people you're working around with your life to make sure that you can get home to your family at the end of the day. So I feel like those skills directly imparted to my professional life, but also just in the general sense, group dynamics, leadership skills, communication skills, conflict resolution, of which there was quite a bit, and just sort of maybe some things that you didn't learn from a classroom in college. Totally. 
Matt, I'd like to come back to the urban jungle and talk, leaving Alaska behind there, very briefly about the work you did in the tree care branch of the U.S. Capitol Grounds jurisdiction. Amongst other responsibilities, you were, quote unquote, climbing specialist. What exactly does that mean? And can you tell us how you came to have tree climbing as a professional skill? Absolutely. So at the Architect of the Capitol, we were tasked with all aspects of tree care for all of the trees growing on the jurisdiction of the Architect of the Capitol, which includes the Capitol building itself, the two chambers, the House and the Senate, the offices for all the senators and representatives, the parks surrounding those, the Supreme Court, the Capitol power plant, really just any tree that was growing on a piece of land that was owned by the Arctic Capital was our responsibility to maintain. And so I believe it's over about 4,500 trees. And there were six guys on our crew that maintained all those trees. So it was quite a tall task. We were in charge with planting, pruning, removal, managing a database of all the trees and species and their needs and any sort of aspect of tree care that they needed. So it was a great experience. Through my tree care career, I've become adept at maneuvering within the crown of the tree while tied in to a, a climbing system. I was never really good at doing removals like some people are. It's a very different skill set and it may be a little bit obscure for people who maybe aren't in the industry, but pruning a tree, maneuvering within the crown of a large tree versus systematically and very purposefully dismantling it are two skill sets that are very different from each other. And so I decided to build upon my strengths and just learn how best to maneuver within the crown of a tree. And so whenever there was sort of an inspection that needed to be performed on a tree that's thought to be dangerous or possibly imminently failing, I was called to go up into the tree, especially if it wasn't accessible by a lift. So I was able to go up to these very large trees that might not be accessible to equipment and inspect a tree, decide what needs to be done, that sort of thing, and then prune the tree if necessary as well. Wonderful. So we are getting close to the end of the interview here, Matt, and these are some of the questions that we try to ask all of our Time for Coffee guests. Great. One of them is, could you share a quick story of a time in your professional life when you struggled? We've all had them I certainly have a few more miles on my odometer than you do. I've had a number of ups and downs in my professional life, whether it's because of colleagues or supervisors or the work itself mm -hmm. or the external environment. Could you share a story of a time in your professional life to date when you really had to dig deep to get through to the other side and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. Absolutely. So I'd say the hardest part of my career was really when I was first starting out. I was new to the industry. I accepted a position as a tree care apprentice with Becara Trees, which is a local tree care company. And tree work is very demanding, physically demanding, mentally demanding, especially when you're a newcomer, to, especially a newcomer to the industry. I'd always loved this fascination with trees and I was trying to figure out a way to turn that into a professional career. Didn't even realize that really this whole tree care industry was so robust. And so when I finally got my chance, I wanted to make the best of the opportunity I was given. I wasn't fully prepared for how physically demanding and mentally taxing it would be. There were days where I was working in 100 degree heat and working 10 hour days, just dragging 
what seemed like infinite piles of brush to the wood chipper to be cleaned and processed. And I had to dig deep for every ounce of strength that I had to be able to deal with the environmental conditions and trying to also learn as much as I could from the veteran arborists that were on my crew while also just putting my best work ethic forward. So that first summer that I worked as a tree care apprentice was some of the hardest that I had to deal with, but I feel like it really helped to prepare me for, you know, all the hard work that was to come and to sort of, you know, if you can handle this, then you can handle anything, especially being from New England where it's not as hot and especially not as humid as it is in the mid-Atlantic, it can be pretty tough. So that first summer, I'd say, was filled with a lot of adversity, but it really instilled in me the importance of a positive mental attitude. And if you sort of put your positive energy and positive vibes out, that's what you're going to get back in return. And just to sort of push through and everything will be okay. Fantastic. Thank you. So Matt, final time for coffee question. Oh boy. If you could go back to college to the University of Massachusetts Amherst and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? The best advice that I could give myself, and I think I maybe have answered this before, was I feel like there is this sort of, I don't want to say joking term of a quarter life crisis. I feel like a lot of maybe undergrads or even graduate students have where they're just so worried, myself included. I had so many sleepless nights about what I was going to do for work, what how I was going to turn this academic career into a professional career. And I just worried about you know, disappointing my peers and my parents and everybody that had helped me get to this point of attaining a college education, that as long as you have good intentions and you work hard and ideally do something that you feel passionate about, everything is going to work out. All the what seemed like huge details back then, what you're going to do, who you're going to work for, what you're going to be doing will fall into place because you have that sort of energy behind you of liking what you do, having a positive attitude about it and just working hard. Do you remember that moment in college when you just let yourself switch? I I don't even think it was in college where that happened. I volunteered for work. I couldn't I couldn't find work. It was a huge problem and that only compounded the issues because I graduated in 2008 before the recession. So work was very hard to come by. And so I decided just to do something that I enjoyed. And so that's why I did the volunteer work in Alaska. I'd always had this sort of fascination with the Pacific Northwest. And so I decided just to follow what I wanted to do. When I got there, I just worked hard and and I just had good intentions of learning and meeting really interesting people and just absorbing anything that I could. And like I said, it all just fell into place when I got back. I moved back to the East Coast with Shandine and all the details of what I was going to be doing sort of fell into place as long as I had the positive attitude. I'm guessing you didn't even know that there were arborists working <laughs> in places like the capital, let right. alone the city of right. Alexandria. I always knew that there were some sort of there's some people or some industry that was taking care of trees, but most people who don't think about that or maybe don't own their homes yet and have to worry about the trees on their property, it's not really something they spend a lot of time thinking about. You figure they just get taken care of. Who cleans the branch when it falls in the park? Suddenly realize that there's this whole world, this whole science, and it is a mixture of art and science, but it's a very young science. Maybe, you know, 50, 60 years is really the industry has become legitimized as a science and there's a lot of research going into it, evidence-based research. And so you don't don't realize the depth, but it is a very important industry. And, you know, all the work that all the arborists do across the country and the world, they help trees live healthy lives that also impart benefits to everybody else around them. So it's quite a, a noble endeavor as well. So, Matt, I don't think we could let this interview end without asking one more time for coffee question. Let's do it. I'm ready. What 
is your favorite tree? Oh boy. You're now that's putting me on the spot here. Now, can I answer it in two ways? So I'll answer it in my favorite tree to climb and also my just favorite tree in general. Okay. So my favorite tree personally is probably the American elm. I'm from Massachusetts. It's our state tree as well as North Dakota. It's just got this great shape, this historic quintessential vase like shape. They were often planted on either side of large thoroughfares in Washington, D.C. and all along the East Coast because they form this sort of the two canopies on either side meet and they almost seem to form this tunnel of trees. And it's very, very cool. It has a somewhat sad history in the early 20th century. The Dutch elm disease brought all of that to a halt. Elm trees all across the country just got wiped out until we formulated a resistant strain to the disease so we can start planting elms again, which is fantastic. And we're right there on the cusp for doing that for the American chestnut, which has basically functionally extinct. It was the one of the reasons why this country got started when the colonists arrived in the New World and saw this just endless forest of American chestnut trees that can be made for lumber, furniture, shipbuilding. It had dropped a treasure trove of edible food for everybody. If you had a chestnut tree on your property, you could survive the winter because you had an almost endless supply of food without having to go hunt or trap. The chestnut blight has all but eliminated the chestnut trees in the natural we're just getting back to being able to reforest them again. My favorite tree to climb, however, is probably the American sycamore or its European cousin, the London plane. So the wood is very, very strong. So you reduce the chance of falling out of the tree, which is always a good thing. The branch unions are very wide as opposed to being very narrow. So there's not as much friction. It makes me maneuvering in the crown of the tree much more fluid as opposed to fighting some of these trees that very rough and furrowed bark. And it takes a lot of friction and it's a lot harder for me to ascend into the crown. So very smooth bark, very strong wood. The crowns are generally wide open. So it's kind of fun to get some really big swings going on from one part of the tree to the other and not having to maneuver my way in and out of this densely packed crown. So when you get a big sycamore or a really big London plane that you can climb, I just kind of sit there and just like rub my hands together and just like, this is going to be fun. (laughs) Awesome. Matt, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me, Riley, and the Time for Coffee community. Thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and your expertise into your fascinating job. We want to wish you all the best in your career and hope that you continue to do the important work that you are so clearly incredibly passionate about. Thank you very much. I had a great time. Thank you for having me. And I would encourage anybody listening, if they have trees on their property, just to make sure that they get them regularly assessed by certified arborist and arborist that's certified by the International Society of Arboriculture and uh, to uh, really understand that trees on your property and around your property impart so many benefits to you that it's really hard to understand how important they are and to just to make sure that they're healthy and you know the best that they can be and they will pay you back very very much thanks so much for listening to time for coffee where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24 7 no matter where you live i have one quick favor to ask you remember to rate review and subscribe to time for coffee thanks so much